Hi, everybody. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And, um, you know, there are, since there's so many new people, um, I want to take a time, a moment. I'm going to share my photos. And, um, you know, I had, had a conversation with someone tonight before the meeting who was uncomfortable about being on camera. And, um, you know, I think we often all come that way, you know, um, into the rooms for the first time, definitely uncomfortable. And I had shared with her that if she were to put her camera on and say hello, that I would share, you know, what I looked like when I first came to a meeting. Because before Zoom, if you came to a meeting, you opened the door and everybody saw you when you came in and took a seat. And I think, you know, for those of us now that are operating this virtual world, it's important that we open the door come in and take our seat, you know, that I have a friend that says, sit all the way down, sit all the way down. And um, so I'm gonna share my pictures um, and, uh, and I'll, you know, give you like a little quick, I'm gonna make it kind of quick because I want to get to the, the heart of this. So, um, you know, the, this is me. This is what it looks like to be in the grip of um, the disease of compulsive overeating. Um, me in this picture, it's over 21 years ago because my daughter is 21 and um, that was her as a newborn. And I remember being, you know, really happy. I mean, you could see there's like, I'm in a loving, ha happy marriage. My husband and I were really happy with this new baby. And I thought, that's it. Now that I've got what I want, I will never eat compulsively again. And yet that didn't work because it wasn't a choice. It was, I was powerless and I had no choice and no control and no, you know, it was not a decision to eat. Um, and so here I am, my daughter got older and I got bigger, right? And so I was eating compulsively, couldn't stop. You could see we're in a restaurant. We were often, most of my photos were taken in restaurants because when you're under the control of the master, food, that was my master then, the master told me what I like to do, right? And, and it basically told me, go out to dinner, go out to dinner and I obey. And that's what we did. You know, this is me. Um, I was, we were having a party in my house that day. It did not look like I was having a party. Um, I was a mess. I could hardly clean myself. I could, I, could not comb my hair. Um, my house was a mess. Um, I like to say that uh, it would be great if my house were not messy today, but I would be lying. It's still messy. Not as bad as it was then, because I was really in a, living in a state of unmanageability. And this is me on vacation, smiling and happy, and about a day away from picking up something alcoholically, food-wise, and then I wasn't smiling by the way. <laughs> Um, this is me with my sisters and my sister-in-laws, uh, drink in hand. Um, and what I remember about these times was it took a lot of alcohol and a lot of food to get me through these family events with people who loved me. But I showed up to every event filled with resentment, filled with, you know, all the memories of everything everyone ever did to me, real or imagined. Lots of it was imagined. And it went back from like when I was three, you know? And I, so I showed up at all these family events, fake smile, 
food in my pocket, drink in hand. And like, it felt like there was a wall in between me and the people who loved me. Um, this was me when my son, he's 15 now, was a baby. And I could hardly hold him because the size of my body and I couldn't keep up with him. He was very active. And I remember, I could see his face. He's peering over, trying to figure out how to get down. Already he was like running and, and active and I couldn't keep up with him. And it, it was painful. Um, this is really when I was at my worst. I was over 300 pounds. This sweater was just about one of the few things I had that fit me and I wore it all the time. And, um, you know, this was New Year's and I probably had a resolution that I was gonna stop and I probably didn't the next day. And, you know, just to sort of show it side by side, I like to show them side by side because it's a visual demonstration of what it means to have a miracle. And that's what it requires. This program is for people who need a miracle. And so I'm blessed because my miracle is visible. I've had a visible miracle. Um, again, this is side by side. What I love about this photo, the reason I always show it and share it is I was in the gray here. I didn't look at my body hadn't caught up yet, but I was recovered there and my eyes look different. And I remember how I felt that day. I was making a big catered affair for my daughter's boss mitzvah, tons of food, tons of alcohol, paying for it all, was not interested in any of it. But what amazed me that day was how the wall that separated me from my family was gone. And I showed up with no resentment. It was like, it was like, wow, I love this family. I just love this family. Um, and, and this is my mom, you know, and I maybe last summer or the summer before. And this is me, you know. Um, what I always share about this is that this is me for the last number of years. Every one of those dresses fits me. And Janet can attest to it. This yellow one, I wore it this week when we went out. Um, we went to see a Broadway show together and I, it's at least five years old. I pulled it out of my closet. That's a miracle for someone like me because I could never predict what size I was from one day to the next. But I've been the same size now for a number of years. So I go in my closet, pull out, you know, pull out an old dress. I happily show up, resentments are gone. These are family photos side by side. Um, again, another side by side. And this was, I wanted to show, this was taken last week. This was Janet and I, we went to see a Broadway show and I'm wearing that yellow dress again, right? Still fits me um, and I just know it. Go in the closet and pull it out. Okay, so why do I bother to show that when I'm gonna talk about steps eight and nine? Well. Usually after I show the pictures, what happens is um, people lean in. They lean in a little closer and they're like, oh wait, she has possibly something to say that might have some credibility. Those pictures give me credibility. It says that I've suffered this and that the solution that I have to offer, you know, works. It's a solution that works. So. Let's jump into the meat of the topic. Um, and last time that we talked, we left off at step six and seven. And step seven is a humble request. It's a prayer. And what's awesome is that I, this morning I was working with a sponsee. I was working with my one of my sponsees, Kelly, Kelly S. And 
sometimes I get asked by people, well, how do you know the big book? Like, how do you learn it? And how is it like, do you study it? Do you study it with, with people after you've recovered? And the answer is yes, but I study it with sponsees after I've recovered, right? I study it with people. I study it with new people. I take people through the steps. And every time I take someone through the steps, I learn more about it and I grow spiritually. So here's the conversation that Kelly and I had this morning. And I asked her if I could use her name and she said, absolutely. We were talking about meditation and we were talking about step seven, step seven slash eight, right? Kind of like gearing into the next step. And what she heard, I thought was so beautiful. She said, prayer is taking our request to God and faith is leaving them with him, right? So prayer is when we take our requests to God and we show faith when we leave our requests with God. And so that's really a perfect bridge from step seven, which is a prayer, which is a humble request for God to take my shortcomings if they're in the way of being useful. And now step eight is really what I demonstrate I'm going to leave them with you, God. I'm going to do some legwork here and I'm going to leave my defects with you. And so in step seven, we ask God to remove our defects. We pray the seven step prayer and I demonstrate my faith when I go out there and I do my best to set matters straight, trusting God with the outcomes. All right, so now page 76 into action. In the third paragraph, it says, now we need more action, without which we find that faith without works is dead. Let's look at steps eight and nine. We attempt to sweep away the debris which has accumulated out of our effort to live on self-will and run the show ourselves. So when we try to run the show ourselves, meaning when we play God, right? When we are the director and we're playing God, we create chaos, hurt, and confusion. That's what, that's what we're taught. And if we haven't the will to do this, we ask until it comes. And again, ask for us means prayer. When I see ask, it means I'm praying. Um, so for those of you who, who might erroneously thought, think that Prayer doesn't happen until step 11. Every time I'm told in this book to ask, who am I asking? I'm asking God. So we start praying right from the get-go. That's the directions. And here we are. We pray, right? And remember, it was agreed at the beginning, we would go to any lengths for victory over alcohol. This was an agreement we made in the very beginning. It's when I asked when I agree to sponsor someone. We look back, you know, I open up page 58 when I'm gonna start with someone and I say, if you've decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. And now steps eight and nine, this is one of those steps, the one that you're ready to take. Okay, the fourth paragraph, probably there are still some misgivings. What's a misgiving? Misgiving is a feeling of doubt or apprehension about 
the outcome or consequences of something. So when I have doubt and apprehension, it's because I'm concerned that there might be consequences from making the amends and those consequences might not go so well for me. But if I keep in mind that I'm no longer running the show, then I really don't have to fear possible outcomes. Trust and reliance on God is critical here. And I can look back at my third step promises if I'm afraid, right? Because remember, we do the steps in order. So by the time I'm making my amends, I have absolutely taken the third step. And on page 63, the promises, the third step promises we get after taking our third step is being all powerful. He provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. So if I'm staying close to God and I'm performing his work well, I'm making these amends, right? That's the work, I'm doing it. And even if my amends result in unfavorable outcomes, I trust that I'm gonna get what I need, right? That's what the third step promise means. Um, and, you know, it might not be what I like and it might not be what I want, but it's what I need. And I have to believe that in the hard times, God will give me the resources needed to get through the difficulties or he will diminish my sensitivity to my discomfort, right? So either God removes what it is that's making me uncomfortable or I'm not so uncomfortable with the circumstances anymore. I get a little bit of a thicker skin. As we look over the list of business acquaintances and friends we've hurt, we may feel different, right? Shy, hesitant, insecure, right? About going to some of them on a spiritual basis. Let us be reassured to some people we need not and probably should not emphasize the spiritual feature and our first approach. We might prejudice them. That's what it says. If we go to them on a spiritual, you know, with the spiritual, we might prejudice them. At the moment, we're trying to put our lives in order, but this is not an end in itself. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. So our actual purpose is not to get our lives in order. It's not our purpose. Although it might be our motivation, right? I might be motivated to do this because I wanna get my life in order, but my purpose is not a life in order. My purpose is that I'm of maximum service. And I learned that the way we get our lives in order is by no longer living for our own selfish means. We have a purpose and our purpose is a true reason for living. And my purpose is to fit myself to be of maximum service, okay? The next paragraph, it says, it is seldom wise 
to approach an individual who still smarts from our injustices to him and announce that we have gone religious. Why lay ourselves open to being branded fanatics or religious wars? We may kill a future opportunity to carry a beneficial message, but our man is sure to be impressed with his sincere desire to set right the wrong. He is going to be more interested in a demonstration of goodwill than in our talk of spiritual discoveries. So the reason we don't go to people talking right off the bat about God, right? We don't go to them and say, I, I got God now, is because if we've hurt them and now we say we found God, they might not see us as being sincere. And we can't be useful to them if they think we're insecure, insincere, or they disregard everything we say because they see us as crazy religious freaks, right? If we go to people and they think, okay, they, this person's lost her mind, they're not gonna really listen to what we have to say or allow, you know, or allow us to really help them. You know, and they may be offended, in fact, that we believe we're good with God now and that the pain we caused is irrelevant, right? So we have to be careful when we go to people in, in that way. Um, the next paragraph on page 77 says, but we don't use this as an excuse for shying away from the subject of God. When it will serve any good purpose, we are willing to announce our convictions with fact and common sense. So we do talk about God if it will serve any good purpose, but we use common sense. And really, more than talking about God, we need to demonstrate, which means show through our behavior God's presence, right? Our behavior will show the presence of God in our lives. Okay, next paragraph says, the question of how to approach the man we hated will arise. And it may be that he has done us more harm than we have done him, and that we may have acquired a better attitude toward him, we are still not too keen about admitting our faults. Nevertheless, with a person we dislike, we take the bit in our teeth. So, you know, if you take the bit in your teeth, it, you do it decisively. Not being controlled by your feelings about what was done to you, or even your opinion of this person. You kind of put that aside, right? Now, page 77, the first paragraph, it's harder to go to an enemy than to a friend, but we find it much more beneficial to us. So we get a greater benefit, right? And, and what is the benefit that we're after? The benefit that we're after is a relationship with God, right? That's what's required here. We need a relationship with God and we get that a more benefit, this relationship grows when we make those harder amends. My relationship with my creator strengthens when I rely on him. When I rely on God, my relationship with God gets stronger. The greater my reliance on God, the greater my freedom. And in step seven, we learned that 
hard situations require more faith, right? That's why we bring it to God in prayer. And I find out that a friend, remember that's what I'm looking for with, with my relationship with God. I need, I need a God that I would consider my friend, my companion, right? My conscious companion. So I find out that a friend is worthy of my trust when I need him and he's there for me, right? When I'm in a difficult situation and a friend shows up and is reliable, I get closer to this friend. And this is how it is with my relationship with my God. And what I say is one of the things that I've done for myself when I've had to make a hard amend with somebody and I wanna feel the nearness of my creator with me. You know, I have a couple of things that I do to try to make sort of a physical connection for me to feel God's presence. One is I'm even doing it now. <laughs> I put a hand on my heart and one on my belly, one on my stomach. And I take a deep breath and I ask God to be with me now, right? And the other thing I do that has helped me in these hard ends is I like to think about, I'm, I'm sure you, many of you have had situations where you're sitting at a table with a good friend and across from you is someone who perhaps is not a good friend, who might be saying something hurtful or who might be saying something that uh, is making you squirm. And something that I've done with a good friend or even with my husband, right? We kind of give each other a little kick under the table. Like we kind of, you know, lean our foot into the other person's foot so we can feel that I'm not alone here. And one of the things that I've done when I've had to make a hard amend is I take one foot of my own and I push it against the other foot, right? And I just sort of think about God within me being there with me. Like I can feel the presence of God with me. I invite God into the space with me. Um, you know, so I go to these people, right? Page 77, it says we're there to sweep off our side of the street, realizing that nothing worthwhile can be accomplished until we do so. Never trying to tell him what he should do. His faults are not discussed. We stick to our own. If our manner is calm, frank, and open, we will be gratified with the result. So when I go to somebody and I have an amend to make, I only focus on my faults. And what we call this is a clean amends. This is making a clean amends. And if I'm going, you know, here's an example, right? If I'm going to my husband, right? And I'm making an amends for my behavior, then I don't mention anything about his actions that came before my behavior, right? I don't, I don't discuss what I think, you know, we call those the triggers, right? I don't bring that up in the event. So when I say to my hubby, right? Um, here's an example. I said, you know, gosh, I've been demanding and I've thrown temper tantrums. And I don't say, I did this when you left a sink full of dishes, right? I leave that part out, right? Whatever precipitated my throwing a tantrum, whatever precipitated my nasty attitude, my sharp tongue, I leave that part out. 
I just say what I did, right? And what I found is that my amends need to be much shorter than I want them to be. Like I used to want a very long, lengthy amends. If they're too long, really what I'm doing is I'm making excuses for my poor behavior or I'm assigning blame rather than just owning my part. Page 78, first paragraph says, sometimes the man we're calling upon admits his own fault. So feuds of years standing melt away in an hour. Rarely do we fail to make satisfactory progress. Our former enemies sometimes praise what we're doing and wish us well. And occasionally they will offer us assistance. It should not matter, however, if someone does throw us out of their office, we have made our demonstration, done our part, it's water over the dam. So I have made amends that were not warmly received. I've attempted to make amends to someone who doesn't want to speak to me at all, even to this day, no interest in talking to me. But I've made my demonstration. And you know, the wonderful thing is I don't have to cringe when I see this person anymore because I've made an attempt. I don't get sick feeling, I don't get that sick feeling inside when she walks into a room. I'm really okay. And when her name gets mentioned, I actually say something genuinely kind about her today. And the crazy thing is God changed my heart. So I sincerely mean it. I'm not lying. When somebody brings her up, I really only have good things to say about her. God has rewired my heart here. So I've had freedom. That is true freedom. Um, whether or not she ever speaks to me again has nothing to do with whether or not I'm free. Page 78, paragraph two, we do not dodge our creditors. And here it says that we can arrange the best deal we can to let these people know that we're sorry, right? So if you owe money, whether it be to credit card companies and debt, and you've been ignoring the bills, we're actually told here that you can call up the banks and you can try to make an agreement, make a deal with them, make a payment plan with them, start a good faith attempt. You know, people set up automatic pay that comes out of their account on a regular basis, you'd be surprised. Banks are actually willing to deal with you. And this way, when your phone rings, you don't have to hide like a prisoner in your own house, ignoring a ringing phone. You can answer it like a gentleman or a lady, right? Um, page, uh, the ne next paragraph ring. Perhaps we've committed a criminal offense, which might land us in jail if it were known to authorities. Maybe it's only a petty offense, such as padding the expense account. Most of us have done this sort of thing. And although these reparations take innumerable forms, there are some general principles which we find guiding. Reminding ourselves that we have decided to go to any length to find a spiritual experience. We ask that we be given strength and direction to do the right thing, no matter what the personal consequences may be. We may lose our position or reputation or face jail. 
but we are willing. We have to be. We must not shrink at anything. So here's the general principles and guides, right? Because they say we've got some general principles. Okay. One, we decided we'll go to any length to have a spiritual experience. Basically, what that means is that we are saying that our relationship with God is the most important thing in our lives. It's going to come first, right? That's what it means to go to any lengths to have a spiritual experience. It means I'm putting God first before everything else. Two, we pray for strength and direction to do what's right. So we, we go to God, we pray, God, show me what to do. And then God doesn't just show me what he, he wants me to do. He actually gives me strength to do it. If I ask, he actually gives me the power, his power to do it. Three, we are not focused on our personal consequences. So we kind of resolutely decide that we're not gonna, we're not gonna focus on it, what our consequences may be. And four, even if we lose our reputation or freedom, and it says here, we actually would sooner go to jail than shrink. Um, and those of us that have been in the bondage of food, um, you know, I believe that I was in the grip of a progressive illness, fatal, that was going to kill me. And that there would be no freedom from that in this lifetime if I did not follow the steps. I had no freedom anyway. I had a master that told me what to do and when to do it. And it convinced me that it was my choice, that I was choosing it, but I wasn't. I was under the throes of a cruel master, this disease. So I had no freedom anyway, right? had no freedom anyway. Okay, I wanna discuss reputation because it talks about reputation. And that is one of those things that um, I have a lot of experience with. I, I had a reputation that I worshiped before my relationship with God. My reputation at one point was more important than my integrity. And I cannot have recovery if I put anything before my relationship with God. And you know, what it was for me was um, I had stolen candy from a coworker, right? I had, I had taken what did not belong to me from someone that I worked with. And, um, and I have a really good, I've had a pretty good reputation in my workplace. I've had most, for the most of my career, I've had bosses that respected me, that thought well of my work. And I had colleagues that would have, described me as a hard worker who, you know, did a lot, right? Who really did a lot. And, um, and I had people that I worked with that I judged as being gossipy. And gosh, I was terrified of them gossiping about me. But I had to go to these colleagues. I had to go to one in particular and tell her what I had done. Had to make, had to set the matter right. Because what is it that I worship? Do I worship God or do I worship this woman's opinion of me? My integrity is more valuable than protecting an image. And I did go to her. And the wonderful thing is, I have no idea whether she told everybody in the building what I did, nor do I care. I don't care. She greeted me kindly. She was very nice to me. Um, 
But I floated out of her room that day. After I told her the truth about what I had done and I made set matters right as best I could, I felt like I, my feet hardly touched the ground. And, um, and I don't feel in bondage to what she has to say about me. In fact, if anybody ever brought it up to me, I would absolutely tell them that I was in the grip of a deadly progressive illness. And if somebody were to say, why did you do that? I would, I would tell them the truth because I was selfish and I was only focused on myself, right? I would, I would own it and move on. I know I don't live that way anymore, but do not take what does not belong to me anymore. Um, you know, and, and so we have to place the outcome in God's hands or we'd soon start drinking again. For me, I would soon start eating again and all would be lost anyhow. And that's why we're doing all this, isn't it? Because we have no options. It, you know, if we don't do it, it's not a matter of if we will return to the food, but it's a matter of when, when we will return to the food, right? You know, page 81 now starts talking about um, sex relations in the home. And we're told that, um, we treat sex like any other problem. And so, you know, it says here that, um, you know, if we've done something untoward, right? And we're sure our wife does not know or our husband does not know, should we tell them, right? Not always, we think, right? Not always because, um, you know, we don't wanna hurt another person. We don't wanna hurt them. And, and, and actually, um, we don't wanna drag someone else's name in. They might start asking who, who else was involved, right? Um, you know, so good generalship may decide whether the problem be attacked on the flank rather than risk a face-to-face -face combat. So we're careful. And we learned that in our inventory process, we treat sex like any other problem. Basically sex relations and issues of infidelity are really tricky areas. There are no absolute rules what we can reveal. If it's going to implicate another person, we must have their consent. If we're going to tell someone something that will cause them pain, then we don't do this. We don't hurt another person to clear our conscience. And what's essential is that we keep the other person's happiness uppermost in our minds. And what this section makes me think of is gossip. And the last time when we talked about defects, I spent a lot of time talking about gossip. And here's what it looks like when you make an amend. Because if you do step six and seven appropriately, your foot is left dangling in the air. You wanna put it down on step eight. You wanna clean up what you've done. You wanna set matters straight. And for me, I did a lot of gossiping, right? Now, the person may not have a clue that we've spoken poorly about them. And if we tell them, then we're implicating those that may have gossiped with you. And we're gonna hurt the person even more that we talked about. So we don't show up to someone and say, hey, look, I'm really sorry. I talked, I talked poorly about you with so-and-so. That would be causing them a lot more harm, right? So how do we make a restitution for slander? Right? How do we set this right? Well, we say things that are positive about the person we spoke poorly about, right? That's how we can help repair 
we start finding positive things to say about the person. And, you know, um, and then we actually apologize to the person we gossiped to, the person we gossiped with. And I have like a kind of a script that I, that I kind of use. And um, I say, basically, um, I tell the person that I value the time that I get to spend with them. And I love getting a chance to talk with them. And I feel like I've wasted our precious time together, polluting the conversation with negative words about other people. And for that, I am sorry. And, um, you know, and that I value the time we spend together and I hope to show it in the future. Now, the funny thing is usually we think, oh my gosh, the other person knows that they've been gossiping too and they're gonna feel uncomfortable if I apologize for my gossiping because after all, they gossip too. Believe it or not, first of all, that's not our business, what other people do. The only business is what I do. And most of the time, other people are not as self-aware. They really don't think that they were gossiping with you. They actually see it that you were gossiping to them. And more often than not, I found I really was. I only imagined that they were an equal participant, but I definitely had more in there than the other person did. Um, and then I have to stop doing it. I have to find other things to speak to that person about. Um, you know, we start demonstrating fidelity and loyalty. That's what we do when we stop talking poorly about other people. If we have no such complications, there's plenty we can do at home. Sometimes we hear an alcoholic say that the only thing he needs to do is to keep sober. Certainly he must keep sober for there will be no home if he doesn't. But at this point, we stop making our families kiss our feet because we're not eating anymore. Like my family doesn't really care. I mean, they do, but they don't if I eat or don't eat. They're not all that interested in what I'm eating. But what truly impacts their world is, am I behaving in a recovered and healthy manner, right? And it says the alcoholic is like a tornado roaring his way through the lives of others. Hearts are broken, sweet relationships are dead, affections have been uprooted, selfish and inconsiderate habits have kept the home in turmoil. We feel a man is unthinking when he says that sobriety is enough. He is like the farmer who came up out of the cyclone cellar to find his home wound. And to his wife, he remarked, don't see anything the matter here, Ma. Ain't it grand, the wind stopped blowing. So no, my abstinence, my sobriety is not enough. That house that's been destroyed was destroyed by me. So whose job is it now to pick up the mess? It's mine. And it's unkind to pretend that I don't see the mess I made, right? I have to open my eyes, see my mess, pitch in and help. And it talks about a long period of reconstruction ahead. And it says here something very important. We must take the lead, right? We take the lead. And that's not a remorseful mumbling that we're sorry. 
right? Other people's defects might be glaring, but chances are that our own actions are partly responsible. So we clean house with the family, asking each morning in meditation that our creator show us the way of patience, tolerance, kindness, and love. So when we make these amends to our family members, especially to our kids, we are to take complete ownership for our actions. Sometimes I would say, you know, we have to be careful when we go to our children because when we make amends um, and saying that we're sorry that we did a poor job of parenting, we run the risk that our children think that they're the byproducts of our mess up and that that's what we're saying, that they turned out poorly and I'm here to apologize because you turned out poorly. And so what I shared is that um, I tell my children that I'm so fortunate that God saved them from my mistakes, that they are exactly the children that God intended them to be, but I regret not assisting God more closely in his work. And then I'm grateful that God stepped in and filled the gaps for my crappy parenting and that they came out perfect despite my mistakes. Then clearly say what it is we regret doing. And we ask them if there's anything else that we've done that hurts them and we don't point out their imperfections, right? I don't point out my children's imperfections. You know, our, the spiritual life, it's not a theory. We have to live it, right? Have to live it. And unless my family expresses a desire to live upon spiritual principles, I don't urge them. I don't talk incessantly to them about spiritual matters. I like to think that they'll change in time, you know? So it's my behavior. It's my actions and not my words. I do not talk on and on about these principles. Instead, I try to live these principles. And early in recovery, I made some big mistakes with my family, especially my children. Especially um, every time my daughter, my preteen daughter would come to me with a problem, I tried to treat her like a spouse and I was gonna 10 step her through her problems. And I owed her a big amend for that because she's not a fellow and she's not my sponsor. And my job as her mother was just to listen and not to show her her part, was just to sort of be on her side and take her part and not show up her part. And, um, you know, eventually she did tell me at one point, I said to her, you know, you don't confide in me. I, I confronted her years, you know, many years later. And I'm like, how come you don't tell me things? You tell everybody but me. And she said, I can't tell you things because you never take my side. You never take my side. And I realized I really owed this child a huge amends. And I have to say that, Today, she shares a lot with me, she does. And I often have to bite my tongue and I have to ask her, are you looking for feedback or just, do you want me to just hear you and offer you love and support? And most of the time she says, just love and support mom. And that's what I offer her. I don't offer her feedback. Um, you know, so I demonstrate it. Um, there are so many, you know, there's so many um, things I want to say. There's so much here, but I want to make sure that I leave. There's like five minutes left. And what I want to say is that 
Um, we need to be painstaking about this. We have to be thorough, careful, and meticulous. We have to be sensible, which means practical and level-headed, tactful, which means delicate and discreet, considerate, understanding, caring, and respectful, humble, which means we go to God with this. We ask God's direction. And we're also not servile or scraping. So we don't beg for forgiveness, right? We don't throw ourselves on people's floors and cry at their feet and say, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Um, but remember that we go to all things as God's representatives, right? We go to all things as God's representatives. And by the way, whether or not we're forgiven has nothing to do with other people, right? When we go and we beg someone for forgiveness, we're actually causing them another harm because they have every right to forgive us or not forgive us. We can make no demands on other people, right? The only thing I need to do is to be willing and to make a demonstration. And um, you know, the next time on Thursday, I know Janet's gonna go through the promises, which are awesome. And we get when we're halfway through the amends. So with that, I'll pass.